Coming up on Liberalism in Question. The fact that my grandmother gave birth to 11 children in the bush, you know, out bush. These are my ancestors. The toughest survived. And sometimes I think if they could see the bunch of whinges that Australia's become today, they'd be rolling in their graves. Enjoy the show and be sure to follow and subscribe. I'm Rob Forsyth and this is Liberalism in Question. My guest is someone, at least in the second half of 2023, is well known right across Australia. She's Senator Jacinta Nabajibba Price. Welcome. You know, you are so famous that when I put this meeting in my diary, in my iPhone, I put N-A-M and it came up automatically. And it, what's the word, uh, the spelling, the spelling suggestion was your name. There we go. How good is that? <laughs> so I thought you want to know you've become famous in the world. Now, welcome and thank you very much. I know it's been a busy time for you and I appreciate you making it available. Although the, we're speaking just after the referendum in uh, in late November, in late October rather, I want to speak in a, a much broader range of just getting into the weeds of something which has now mm. passed. And I want to talk especially about the status quo in Indigenous affairs and your vision for a new vision of Indigenous squares, a much more liberal vision for Indigenous squares. Mm. So I'll put it this way, what, what do you understand is the status quo of Indigenous affairs in Australia? Oh, is dependence, welfare, dependence, dependence on governments and organisations and bureaucracies that are somehow tasked with improving the lives of Indigenous Australians as opposed to empowering the individual. It's, you know, there's a lot of groupthink. So let me unpack the groupthink. I assume that the proponents don't talk about dependence. They're talking about something else, self-determination. That's how they frame it. Yeah, mm. yep. Now, and that's been a policy for, what, about 50 years. Mm. But in your view, it's failed. Absolutely. Absolutely, it's failed. You know, I think, and I often say, you know, when I see the picture of Whitlam pouring the sand into Lingiari's hand, you know, to me that was, you know, he was he loved the fact that he was framed as the hero champion of Indigenous Australians. You know, I'm, I'm giving you, I'm handing you your land back. But to me, it it was a handing over of well, welfare dependency. You know, you can be land rich, but you're going to be dirt poor through the Land Rights Act. Yes, we're. And, yeah, yeah. And, you know, this idea that we've done terrible things in our history, so therefore we will now leave you to your own devices, which at that stage I think was detrimental for Indigenous Australians because it was thought, well, you know, you, you can't, you can't, Im, you know, impose changes, such rapid changes on a group of individuals, not see them through to the end, and then just leave them hanging. I don't think it was like being handed the keys to a car, but not being taught how to drive for a lot of Indigenous Australians. And there were measures such as the equal pay decision, which I think was all, you know, well intentioned, but it meant a lot of Aboriginal people lost their jobs as a result of that. The unions took advantage of that. They suggested they only wanted to give equal pay to Indigenous Australians who joined the unions. Uh, uh, and then that was coupled with access to alcohol and welfare. Uh, so that was when things, I think, began to get worse. For so so from, you understand the policy of self-determination, in a sense, was irresponsible given where, where if remote Indigenous people were. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, because all of a sudden it was, you know, where it's against the law to not send your child to school, 
suddenly it was like, okay, live the, live the way, live your own way, live, you know, live attached to your country and your land and spirituality. You know, take on the modern tools if you like. That's your choice. But we're not gonna we're not gonna force anything onto you. But basically, I feel like a lot of people were left to their own devices because of that sense of guilt. And, and, and I think from then on, also, you know, and other prime ministers going forward would suggest that Aboriginal Australians have been victims of of white Australia, and that narrative has stuck. And it's still to this day. And I think that's it removes our agency. It suggests that we will only be empowered by a government, by the coloniser, in other words, white Australians, who owe us something, but therefore they they hold the power to our to us being able to move forward. Whereas we know that, you know, guilt politics hasn't worked. I think the victim mentality hasn't worked. It's all been very stifling. So I may speak on behalf of the rest of the nation. <laughs> why Australia guilt? And I come back to that and just say, why we feel guilty? And in giving, trying to do the best, which is give self-empowerment, the Indigenous people hearing the message, you are victims, both feed into a system that is destructive on both. Let me start with the white guilt segment, get out of the way. <laughs> um, in your press club, in your press club address, National Press Club address earlier this year, you completely stunned the uh, Guardian journalist who thought he had a was bowling you a, uh, a full toss, but it was more than that. But you said it was an ongoing effects of colonialism, and you deny there were any. Mm. It's not any bad at ongoing effects. Mm. Unfortunately, you only had a very short moment, and I know that your critics and even some of your supporters said, oh, that was an overstatement. And <laughs> but I think you actually were quite serious about that. Mm. And I think I'd like to hear more of the context in which you said it, because mm. that's such an unusual thought. I think, surely she couldn't have said that, but you did say it, and you meant it. I did mean it. I did mean it. And more broadly, what I meant was while, you know, there I wasn't denying that previously the effects of colonisation had brought about devastation, but right now in Australia in 2023, the modernisation of our country has brought extraordinary opportunity for Indigenous Australians. <clears throat> and the prime examples are those who have fought for the S campaign. Uh, they are educated, they have influence, they have power. They are not worrying about, you know, what happens when they go to bed at night. They're sleeping comfortably. And and the improvements that Australians in general want for our most marginalised is evident. And we're all striving for that. I remember being rather surprised watching a television show in which a woman, I think, we were able to dress, I think she was overseas on something, was telling us how colonialism had damaged her life. I thought, if it wasn't for colonialism, you'd be doing what, what exactly tonight? Yeah. You'd be still hunter gathering. Well, that's right. Well, I wouldn't exist for starters <laughs> because obviously, you know, I have ancestors who were convicts as well. You know, the vast majority of the activist class wouldn't exist because they are a mixed heritage predominantly. So you, you, you're distinguishing the genuinely woeful effects, not just of the fact of colonisation, but the way it was done in many ways in, in the history of Australia, particularly in the 19th century. To the situation today, that's a distinction you're very keen to draw. Absolutely, and that's a distinction not drawn by by your critics. That's exactly right. They um, continue to want to live in a past two hundred years ago, as opposed to recognising, you know, the incredible country that we do have, the opportunities that do exist within this country right now, and because of that inability to be that gratefulness to have any great be grateful for what we do have, again, it's part of the whole 
guilt politics issue where we're stifled and we, we, we can't, you know, move forward from that. And that, as you mentioned, again, rather surprisingly, uh, running water and food supply. Mm. So I thought, wow, that's a, that's a low bar. <laughs> but if, and I realised, thinking from the, your, your distant ancestors, both things were very hard to find. Well, my grandfather. My grandfather came into contact with, with white Australians in his early adolescence. So his life was, uh, was you know, the hunter-gatherer life uh, up until a point. And for my family in the desert, it was kill or be killed. You know, violence is used as a, as a means of social control, like all small-scale societies on earth. We in the desert had very little access to, well, any running water unless it was raining and, 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 and access to the, you know, the food that we have nowadays is, is just readily available. I mean, this, this was not available in my grandparents' generation up until a point. That's right, Michael. Well, now, your grandfather, I believe, was not treated well by the white people who met him. In fact, there'd been a massacre in the, earlier on around that time, I correct, in New Alice Springs. Mm. And yet, as I remember you telling me earlier, he did not have resentment against this. Can you explain hmm. what that's a remarkable response? Yeah, so we uh, experienced the last sanctioned massacre in 1929 in our country. My grandfather was <clears throat> a child at the time, and because my family was so close to the action, they held responsible a member of our family who they felt if if weren't wasn't for his actions where he murdered a, a white man, a dingo hunter, then it wouldn't wouldn't have brought on that response. So he, they, they put some of that responsibility on him because he lived to, to old age, whereas many of our family members were killed because of this massacre. But we also held a commemorative ceremony 25 years, sorry, 75 years after it took place and invited the descendants of those who literally killed our family because my family wanted to recognize this as a healing process to say, we don't blame you for literally what your grandfather did to our family. We recognise that these were hard times in our country country's history. We, you know, we had we had commonly tried to take out our enemies, and they tried to take out us. You know, it was, it was tough, and and they saw that in that broader context of the frontier as well. But they wanted they recognised that things had changed. We're now at this stage in Australia. <clears throat> we're all part of this country together, and we want to move forward together. And that element of I guess forgiveness was uh, centre stage, and and that to me is what true reconciliation looks like. Yes, unfortunately, we have a grievance industry that doesn't want to take that next step. Any special reason why your father, your grandfather rather, chose the forgiveness path? Your 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 because that's still even from your culture, that's not an easy thing to do. Forgiveness, is not as I understand traditional Aboriginal culture, is there some was there some religious activity or a Christian was something something else going that led to this remarkable. I think I think in traditional terms, in order for to be you know not just survive but thrive in a harsh environment, yep. you can't you have to move forward from things. You can't hold on to things forever. So I mean, in traditional terms, if someone has you know caused an injustice, they usually are prepared to ha- put themselves forward for a punishment, for a violent punishment, like spearing in the leg. And then everything is forgotten about. Once that punishment has taken place, 
in traditional terms, you move forward. You don't. But there was no punishment of the white man in this situation. No, no. But it also has to be done while what they say while the blood is still hot. Right. It has to be done immediately. It can't be done later on. And down this is why the concept of inherited guilt is something you have no track with. It seems. Yeah, that, that that that's right. There is that. But also, I mean, Christianity has played a huge role in a lot of the lives of Indigenous Australians. I mean, my my grandparents, you know, depends what community you came from, the, the, the Baptist missionaries were in Yundamu. My grandparents were part of that oh, right. church as well. And for a lot of Indigenous people, it's never replaced our spirituality but become another layer on top of. Right. And it's thought that, you know, even the way the logic of my own family members, they will say, when someone has been through their their years of rebellion and turmoil and, you know, often drinkers, uh, you know, those who have been heavy drinkers and then come out the other end and survived that and changed, they often become Christians. So thought that, well, if you're Christian, you're a non-drinker, you're all of these things, you, you've grown, you've grown up. <laughs> if you're now, your attitude to your traditional culture is, I think, ambivalent. There are things about it that you treasure. Mm. There are some things about it you think are quite dysfunctional, mm. and and therefore, the uh, romancing of the primitive, the noble savage, mm. which is a great trope in Western culture, it's had other versions. Black Black Eam is a good example of an attempt to turn them in dark in yes, sorry, absolutely, to turn indigenous people as sort of primitive yeoman farmers, and that strikes me as very strong at the moment. I find a lot of talking about it's to the point where it's not even possible to mention the mm. downside of indigenous culture. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, largely, yeah. largely the narrative around Indigenous Australia has been held by those who haven't lived traditional culture, who have had access to education. The romanticism comes from, I think, a sense of loss of not having culture. But for those that live it also, the fact that they haven't had access to education doesn't provide the opportunity to reflect that or, 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 you know, determine, well, why have we done these things? Why has our culture evolved in this way going forward? And then and then articulate that to a wider audience. It's sort of like, no, we've always done this this way and that's how it is. So you contrast, you know, that and then you contrast those who romanticise it and then there's someone like me in the middle who goes, well, I understand both and I also know that as human beings, if we need to, if we, in order to progress, there are elements of that from our traditional side that we need to relinquish that is no longer good for us, but take with us what enriches our lives and in, into the modern world <clears throat> to progress with hum- humanity. But the uh, ideology of the left suggests that you know it's all you share it over again. You know, Aboriginal people need to con- you know connected to culture and country and so romantic. And there's elements of that that are lovely, but realistically, we're just human beings. And within our culture, there are terrible things as well, and we have to confront and it, and that. The the great message of sixty five thousand years and counting of continuous culture. Yeah, <laughs> which I, again strikes me. As, I understand why people might say that, but my ancestors are as old as your ancestors. Mm. <laughs> you follow what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and maybe the not maybe the continuous itself may be part of the problem. The isolation and and the rem, and the remarkable survival. I, I don't want to take away from a moment the the remarkable survival of Australian. Of, of first Australians, yes, but in the in the modern world, some of those things are going to be completely inappropriate and, and worse than inappropriate, actually damaging to you. 
Well, it's not just, and it's not just that. It's the recognition of the the modern Aboriginal person isn't actually steeped in the traditional culture of sixty five thousand years ago. It, there's only elements of that that have come through, and we are now entwined with a shared Australian culture, and and. So you can't disengage with the modern world, right? You, you can't. You can't say, let's form a, let's form a special place where indigenous people go back, go back the way things were in 1780. Yes. <laughs> right? It's well, impossible. Can't be done. And therefore, the, 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 you need a way for that really does move people into the world that exists. Yes, absolutely. And some of our most successful middle-class people of Indigenous heritage in this country have the formula, have successfully... <laughs> you know, been through the formula, have applied that formula to their life. Now, tell me about yourself, because you had a number of your family severely damaged. There have been violence, there's been deaths in your family, you've been touched quite personally. Mm. Yet here you are, the minister, the shadow minister for Indigenous Affairs. Mm. What happened? I think I just, you know, I've grown up tough. <laughs> I've grown up tough in a place like Alice Springs, and I've seen everything. There's nothing that I haven't seen or experienced. And because of having that life experience, I know that there's a better way forward and I, I can see what the obstacles are in, in the way of moving forward for, for particularly those that I love, my family, whose lives I, I, I want to save, that I don't want to see any more death, I don't want to see any more destruction and violence. <clears throat> and I want, you know, in a country like ours in 2023, we should be able to stand up for the human rights of our most marginalised, there is no reason we cannot do that. So this is personal, not just theoretical for you, just it a price. Absolutely. <laughs> it's it's absolutely personal to me. And 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 also uh, I mean I, I I know I know what a bully is. I've never liked bullies and I'll always stand up to bullies. Now you you, you make it I heard you make a comment the other day that feminism has not come to the indigenous peoples hmm. and that there's no Me Too movement in in tech. Can you tell us, unpack that a little further for us? Yeah, so uh, because we're framed as victims, you know, even perpetrators, Aboriginal male perpetrators are viewed as victims, so therefore we can't hold them to account. There's always an excuse for their behaviour. Traditionally, you know, when the Aboriginal rights movement took place, you had, I mean, for example, Marlene Cummins had came out in a documentary that was filmed by Rachel Perkins about how she had experienced sexual assault and rape by members of the Aboriginal Black Panthers movement yeah. in Australia because women were told, no, you are to fight for the benefit of our race, therefore putting your you know rights as women behind that movement. And it hasn't changed. It has not changed. And when we try, when I try to argue about the rates of violence in remote communities, we're always told it's a result of white colonisation and white men, and we're denied the reality that it is in fact an acceptance of violence within traditional culture, that women are, it's patriarchal society we're dealing with, women are not as important as men, certainly girls are at the bottom of the ladder when it comes to hierarchy uh, in our society. We, even women, will side with that narrative and that's that's the sad part about it all, which is why I put it back on leftist Indigenous women when they argue for the rights of. Does this imply you have a certain nervousness? That if if there was an honest, realistic, if 
appreciation of the strengths and weaknesses mm. of traditional society, the weak, what should be shown today. If they somehow, if that's, it's, if they'll th- condemn it all, they somehow fear that if you mention a weakness, yeah. somehow it's going to be put down. Is, is that not picking up? Yeah, yeah, like yeah, absolutely. I mean, you just have to look at the reaction of putting forward, you know, the call for a royal commission of the sexual abuse of Indigenous children. The reaction, you know, it's brought all of those organisations that said they would fall silent. Who, who who were mourning the loss of the voice referendum they've now they're now back into you know the swing of things we've ended their silence because they have all come out to say we don't need a royal commission in the sexual abuse of our children when we know we need something though don't we we absolutely need something when we know that their evidence is stark that our children experience the highest rates of sexual abuse in the country our women are experience violence at the highest rates. And you're not saying this is the legacy of colonialism? No. No, no. I'll, I'll, it's not the legacy of colonialism. I will say that colonialism certainly has had a negative impact in in terms of this, absolutely. But, I, but I'm not put, putting all blame at the feet of colonialism because that makes everyone responsible and yet no one responsible at the same time. And this has to come down to, I mean... <clears throat> For example, you know, the fact that, I mean, girls were married off at the age of 12, 13 to men who were significantly older than they were. The fact that there's a number of women in my own family who have experienced sexual assault by their promised husbands when they were 13-year-olds. You know, the evidence is all there and yet trying to fight for the rights of Indigenous women from a position of truth and honesty is the hardest thing to try to get the Aboriginal industry to come on board. Hey, we spent a while talking about what's wrong, <laughs> why the solution is not right. What's the way forward for you hmm. at, or in for Australia? Hmm. Tell us what your vision is. So I think, I mean, I'm really humbled and grateful that the vast majority of Australians agree with my position on these issues. That they, but I'm not sure they know you. But I think they agree with the voice wasn't a good idea. But I think there's a lot, a lot further to go on in. Oh, in yeah, well, paradigm well, of indigenous that, absolutely. But, and part of what I've been arguing right throughout the debate was to to halt, uh, you know, apply for better accountability, certainly on the Aboriginal industry, to improve the lives, certainly of our of our children, of our women, of our most marginalised. There's no shortage of goodwill from the Australian people toward that. So for me, the work that I want to do with my colleague, Karen Little, is we are now, you know, we're calling for these inquiries. We're calling for this Royal Commission. We want to develop policy around streamlining the Aboriginal industry, applying better accountability so that we do see the outcomes that are required. But I'd like to see a shift away from race-based policy to make it more needs-based policy. That's what I'd like to do going forward. So that means don't ask if a person's Aboriginal or not or Indigenous, ask them if they're poor or suffering. Yes. Because you did make that rather provocative comment that although you are Shadow Minister, you'd like to see a day when there was no Minister for Aboriginal Australians. Exactly. And which is something that when my mother was part of the Giles government, they did was they scrapped- This is the Northern Territory. In the Northern Territory, yes. They scrapped the the Minister for Indigenous Territorians portfolio. They did set up an office, Office for Indigenous uh, Territorians, which then all portfolios could be engaged with. But the idea was to take that step away. 
is not the existence of land rights inconsistent with that? The fact mm. that we have identified, and rightly so, I think, mm. the fact that prior ownership does still exist. And so mm. there's a way in which there'll always be some special rights of, indiv- of, of groups of people. Mm. Well, I guess if it, we're all landowners in some sense. Mm. But is that consistent with, uh, with your removing race from the... No, and that's another issue that I'd like to... I'd love to be able to review the Land Rights Act in the Northern Territory, and if it requires a scrapping or, or reformation, that's what we need to do because I think traditional owners, as I said, are land rich, dirt poor. The communal ownership model has not been working. You know, private ownership of private property is something that is available to all Australians except Aboriginal Australians in remote communities. In fact, it seems to me the more I hear, the more I think you're saying it's some of the principles of classical liberalism that you actually think are good for Indigenous Australia. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, Aboriginal people, you know, education is important, but so is economic independence, which, you know, all other Australians have the opportunity toward that. In remote communities, what you have is enclaves, socialist enclaves and dependency on welfare, as opposed to Indigenous Australians having the opportunity to utilise their resources to be job creators in their own right. Do you think there's still a future for remote communities still in, in this model of yours? The, sorry. You... Well, I mean, the very remoteness creates a whole range of problems. I think someone said you could either have modern medical outcomes or remote living, but to put them together, very difficult. I think, I think the whole, you know, everything needs to be reevaluated and reassessed, and it needs to be taken into consideration when there are some communities that are just living off life support, basically in terms of welfare, welfare whether they, whether they should be, you know, those those, re- those residents should be taken to larger communities or you know, closed, closing down of those places that are just held up on welfare in that way, whether that the sustainability around them and the benefit, the quality of life for those people living that way is just not good for them, well, we should be offering them better. Tell me about your grandfather. Well, my grandfather was tough and deeply loving, but he was never an individual who complained he never was anybody's victim. And I think that was the mentality of certainly Warpri people living in such a harsh climate. You couldn't, you couldn't be a snowflake, you know. You couldn't feel sorry for yourself because that could very well lead to death. It, 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 you know. So I was never taught to be uh, anybody's victim. And that they're the sorts of values that certainly my grandfather, my grandmother instilled in me. I mean, I take my hat off to the fact that my grandmother gave birth to 11 children in the bush, you know, out bush. These are my ancestors. The toughest survived. And sometimes I think if they could see the bunch of whinges that Australia's become today, they'd be rolling in their graves to know that, well, we've overcome, you know, centuries of living off a harsh desert environment, not just surviving but thriving and also with an incredible sense of humour, then what is going on with modern day? But, so there is interesting, something from your traditional culture which has greatly strengthened you in this task, even if you're talking about Indigenous people did now become part of a modern world and mm. not stay in the bush like that. Mm. That's right. And, and I think my, my grandfather was a visionary. He saw his first engagement, he was intrigued by his first engagement with white Australians. 
and he saw the world moving and he knew he had to be part of that What change. did he think they were? Well, so a lot of Aboriginal mob thought that they were ghosts. Right. Ghosts of ancestors right. went back until they realised that we're dealing with a different set of human beings here. I mean, my, my grandfather, you know, you had to work, you had to provide for your family, otherwise you didn't survive. He became part of the modern world. He did various different jobs. Uh, he took mail on camelback. He he was a labourer. He helped build Alice Springs. He worked as a tracker for police. He was a groundsman at the school, and he saw. He also saw that education was now becoming the tool for survival, and made sure that my mother and her siblings received an education. And he also, like he. He was embarrassingly proud of the fact that my father was white. He saw that as a coming together of the two worlds with my parents. And he and he also, I mean, he said to me, I remember he was blind when I was a little girl. And I remember I must have been about 10 and I, and I sat on his lap and, you know, and he's sort of, you know, seeing how, how big I'd grown. And he goes, hey, it mustn't be far off now till you, you know, it's time for you to get married. <laughs> And I, I was like, "What are you talking about? I'm only ten years old." And he had a chuckle. And he goes, "Oh, but you know what? When you, when it does come, when you know, when you're grown up and it t- does come time for you to marry, he said, I want you to marry a white fella." And he didn't he, mention a Scotsman. Did he? It, 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 <laughs> he didn't specifically say a Scot. He, he I, I, you know, <laughs> just in case. I mean, there are white men and there are white. On the other side of the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but, but, and, and and my my dad sort of responded with, "Oh, you know what." She can she can marry whoever she wants, sort of thing, because he was embarrassed by that. But the truth was, what he meant by that was, I want to make sure that you know you continue to take advantage of the modern world, and you know that's he he wanted the best outcomes for me. He could see sort of the demise of our family too, and uh, and probably knew that within traditional culture. You know, the idea of me being married off in a traditional way was not the way to go anymore because my mother rebelled against that incredibly and she gained his support to not be forced into an arranged marriage. So you owe a lot of your embrace of a a new vision for Indigenous people to your grandfather. Absolutely. The man who first met white people. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I noticed a strange contradiction in the the voice that failed. It was meant to to give Indigenous people a voice Mm. and yet... It was said it'd be equal men and women, which is a modern Western cultural imposition. Hmm. I just thought, that's interesting. Well, that's right. I mean, the proponents of the voice will pick and choose where they think uh, and also, you know, reinvent culture in their own image of what they want. So, I mean, the whole concept of the voice itself goes against traditional culture. You know, you can't have a representative from somewhere else representing your 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 mob, right? Yeah, uh, and speaking to the traditional owners at Uluru, they were really upset at the fact that whenever the minister Linda Burney came to visit, she didn't show, she showed no interest. In fact, all of the yes campaigns showed no interest in the jukurpa, the dreaming, the spirituality of the place. But they took the name in order to exploit it for wow. a political purpose. So they absolutely did the wrong thing in terms of traditional culture. And every time they visited uh, Murujulu, they would never come in and say, hello, we are here, this is why we're here. They they would fly in, have their photo shoot no, and take off. Oh, don't worry, they, they, they had to pay for 
they paid for that, they paid for the dances, for the photo shoot opportunity, and then they would go again. Well, it sounds like it's time for realism in Indigenous policy in this country. Absolutely. (laughs) If you enjoy this content, please consider joining us by becoming a member of CIS. You'll be part of Australia's growing movement towards free markets, individual liberty, cultural freedom, and a limited government. Join today at cis.org.au slash membership.